Good morning. My name is Jeremy Holdsworth. And we have two passages of Scripture, Romans 8, 12 through 14. And then also Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Let's stand together. Romans 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Please be seated. At this time, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first grade. And I think as you, we go through the sermon today, it'll be helpful to have the insert in front of you. Although you may want to turn in your Bibles to these texts, most of the ones we were speaking from are listed there. Most of you are aware that the supply line for your life when you're in the womb is called an umbilical cord. But you know that once you're born, once you're brought into the light of the world, then you don't need an umbilical cord anymore. So a doctor cuts it off. Maybe some of you dads, at least more recently, uh, get the opportunity to cut the umbilical cord, if that's a good thing. <laughs> but you cut it off, and what the doctor does at that point is he puts what I thought was a hair barrette on it. It's some kind of clip on your this rotting piece of flesh that's left that over time it begins to fall away. This, this thing that was giving you life in the darkness, now that when you're brought out into the light of the world, you no longer need. And although a lot of it gets cut off, there's a piece that's left, and it's a piece of little rotting flesh, and it has to drop off at some point. Well, when I had my first child, Zachary, I saw this whole procedure and um, I may have said this story before, but he's so cute. I'm getting him up in the morning. I'm, I'm, I'm being with him in the mornings. And maybe, I don't remember, seven, eight, nine days. I can't remember. It seemed like a long time. I, I keep coming back to this little barrette and this rotting piece of flesh. And it wasn't that big of a deal, except for maybe mostly in the mornings, because he had this little onesie on. You know what a onesie is? You know, it's a, what, as an adult, you think would be the most comfortable thing to get into. And um, you, you unzip the onesie, right? 
And as cute as he was, as soon as the ones he got unzipped, what kind of smell? This rotting flesh just poured out of the onesie. And I was no doctor, still not. And I didn't really know how long it took to get the rotting flesh off, but I made a quick judgment that this was a day for it to come off. I knew he would have no recall of this moment in his life. And so... Dad just helped with the disconnect, let's say that. And so once you get that disconnected, you have a belly button. That's where that ends up coming from, as you know. Well, the Apostle Peter describes a person becoming a Christian like this. You've, you've been called out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Remember when Nicodemus came and visited Christ at night? And Jesus says, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, then you have to be born again. But when you come out of the darkness and you come into the wonderful light, when you're when you're born again, when you're a new creation in Christ. That this rotting flesh, what what you thought was giving you life, isn't just automatically cut off. You're still left with these pieces that now with the Holy Spirit living in you, you have to, with the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, with the help of other people, you have to begin to carve these things away from yourself. Habits or practices, thoughts that need to be disconnected. Which is why Paul says in Romans, no longer be slaves to sin. You see, you're not, you're not going to find life from an old supply line. Before you knew Christ, you had a supply line. That was what you thought was giving you life. But once you've come out into the light, then you have a whole new supply line and all of your old supply lines need to be pinched and then just cut off. So we don't want to be slaves any longer to these old supply lines. But by the spirit, we are going to put to death or mortify the deeds of the body. So the question we've been wrestling with in this Sermon series, The Mortification of Sin, really comes from the old Puritan preacher, John Owen. He stands up and he speaks in Oxford in the 1700s to a group of 15 year old boys who are now entering college at that time. And he asked this question to these boys. Suppose a man be a true believer. And yet finds in himself a powerful indwelling sin leading him captive. What shall he do? What shall he insist on for the mortification of this sin? And so we're going to look at that again today. Last week, we talked about the importance of your mind. Remember from Hebrews 2, therefore, we must pay much closer attention. We've got to give our full effort to what to putting this sin to death. We've got to pay closer attention. We have to hold in our mind what we've heard or we're going to. We're going to drift away. And remember that imagery. If you if you don't hold it in your mind, then it's like you have cracks in a pot. It just begins to sort of leak away. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, I'm telling you something and just hearing it isn't going to be good enough. You're going to have to hold it in your mind and you're going to have to keep it there or you're just going to drift away. And so we talked about that last week. The three things I want to follow through with are like tools Tools to defeat the sin. 
in the indwelling sin, this, this, these old supply lines in our life, and they fall under the headings exercise, exposure, and enjoyment. You'll see those on your outline. So let's talk about exercise in two different ways. First of all, we have to exercise the Word of God. You have to actually exercise or put into place or put into motion the Word of God. If you want to sever any kind of old supply line that you think, gosh, that still feels like it's giving me life, you're going to have to put into place the Word of God. Most of you are familiar with the passage on, in Ephesians 6 where Paul basically gives a Christian dress code. So what is the what is the full armor of God? And he goes through your head all the way down to your feet. And there's only one weapon in there. And it's an offensive weapon. How are you going to defeat the enemy? And he gives you the answer in this dress code. In Ephesians 6, he says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we're going to have to enact the word of God just at the place that we need to cut off the old supply line. And I don't think there's really any better example I can give you than Christ himself on this. So just just follow this thinking. You and I are commonly coming into contacts with temptations and, and you just encounter them one right after another. Sometimes you're aware they're coming. Other times they just sort of appear on the screen. And at these very moments, you, you feel like you're being enticed or you're being captivated by something. Something's coming in to try to make you a prisoner and take you away. What do you do at that moment? What do you sort of pull out of your arsenal? What tool do you have at that moment to fight against that temptation? Jesus faces the temptation of hunger. I need something physically. And he quotes from Deuteronomy. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. A little later in his ministry, Jesus is challenged to go along with the hypocrisies of the Pharisees. And he quotes to them Isaiah 29. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus comes into the temple where they're making prophets on the name of God. And he looks at him and he quotes Isaiah 56. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus stands before the high priest and he's questioned by a creation, the identity of the creator. Jesus, the creator, is standing before one of the created things. And the created thing, the high priest is saying, I want to know about your identity. And instead of just wiping them off the face of the planet, Jesus quotes from Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is carrying his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. And these women are, are alongside the road and they're weeping. They're feeling sorry for Jesus. And instead of Jesus feeling sorry for himself, he quotes to them, Jeremiah 16, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus is pinned on a cross. 
He's being put to death by a slow suffocation. You don't just die of exposure or blood loss on a cross. You can't take a breath. And so you painfully lift yourself up on the cross to draw some kind of breath. And so as he's there, he doesn't have an opportunity to say many things. In his dying breath, he quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, if Jesus is walking through this planet in the flesh and he's facing all kinds of temptations from his body to join in hypocrisy, to question his own identity, to perhaps question even where God is in a situation, what is he going to do to put that to death, to cut that off? He's going to quote scripture every time. So if he needs that. How much more do we need it? And so I'm asking you this question. Are you holding in your mind the word of God? So that when you encounter these situations, you can pull it out like a sword and just cut it off before it really gets going in your mind. Joshua enters into the new land, Canaan, and these are his instructions Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you'll be careful to do everything written in it. Then, then you're going to be prosperous and successful. We live in a culture that wants prosperity and wants success. And what's the way to that? Memorizing and meditating on the word of God. Another thing that we have to exercise is self-control. We see that in many places, but in Titus 2 particularly, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, meaning Jesus Christ. He has appeared. And once you understand the grace of God, once the Holy Spirit is in your life, then that teaches you to do what? Or it trains you to say no. The grace of God trains you to say no. No to worldliness, no to ungodliness. So another tool in putting sin to death is saying no to yourself. I love the quote on the front of the bulletin by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I'll just read part of it. I do not know of a single scripture, and I speak advisedly here, which tells me to take a particular sin to God in prayer and ask him to deliver me from it and then trust that in faith that he will. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest expositors, just couldn't find a place in the scripture that says, well, just identify your sin, take it to Christ and hope that he puts it to death. Which is so often our practice. No. Instead, if you read the Apostle Paul, he does not advise that. He, he doesn't say, go and pray to Christ to deliver you. No. He says, stop doing that. Say no. You and I have to exercise saying no. What's one of the things that you do during Lent? What do you do during the 40 days of Lent? You give up something. You practice saying no. 
And even if you fail miserably, even if you said on the first day, I'm going to say no to this, just not being able to do it helps you realize that you're struggling to say no. And you and I are going to have to learn how to say no to ourselves. Adam and Eve lived in a country of ultimate prosperity. And what was their downfall? One of the things is they couldn't say no. Any country of incredible prosperity will come down when the inhabitants of that country cannot say no to themselves. And we are living in those days. We have everything before us. And yet we still can't exercise saying no. The psalmist understood this in Psalm 1. Remember, there's two different paths. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. There's the way of the blessed man. And, And what's characteristic of going the way of the blessed man, the way of the righteous? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked. The first step in walking in the way of righteousness is to say no to another path. I'm not going to walk in that way. I'm not going to stand there. I'm not going to sit there. Instead, that man, his delight is going to be on what? The law of the Lord. And I'm meditating on it day and night so that I can be like a tree planted like by streams of living water. And so the psalmist understands that in order to go in the way of the the righteous, we are going to have to exercise, exercise saying no, no to ourselves and no to the culture that we live in. Every parent understands this. Do you not? What's one of the first words your children pick up from you? Some of them might think it's even their name. It gets said, said more often than their name. Well, I thought my name was no until I was three years old. They must learn no. No, you cannot run out into the street. No, you cannot talk to strangers. No, do not stick your finger into a socket. No, do not touch that hot place on the stove. You're constantly saying that because, you know, if they can't understand no and live under no, they're just in for utter destruction. If you're a child here, a teenager, whether you're eight or 16, do you feel like your parents say no a lot? Think about this. You have this feeling, gosh, my parents say no a lot. And that frustrates me as an eight-year-old, or it really frustrates me when I get to be 16, because I'm now smarter than my parents when I'm 16. And, And what your parents understand is something that perhaps you don't yet see. And that is, if you can't operate under no, when you have your hand in a cookie jar, If you can't operate under no when you're having an argument about the clothes that you should be able to wear. 
If you can't operate at those levels under no, then when it comes to your bank account, a credit card, a computer screen, when you get to be an adult, you can't operate under no at that point either. And those consequences are tremendous. They're a lot different than just a cookie jar. When you have your hand in an adult cookie jar that you should have said no to, that's going to result perhaps in your physical death. And they know that. And so practice. Listen here, if you're a high school person or an eight year old, learn to live under the word no. In in my household, when we were younger, we'd always try to say obey right away. Not, we don't need negotiation. We, we, you have to say no. If, if we're going to carve off parts of our flesh, when it comes up, we're just going to have to say, no, I'm not going in that direction. And one of the things, one of the ways that's going to help you is if you can put Scripture at that particular point. So if I'm your personal spiritual trainer today, just consider me your personal spiritual trainer. And we're having this little conversation. And we're not talking about how many pounds you've lost. We're talking about how much sin you've lost. How much sin have you been carving away this week? And we step up on the scale. Are you losing weight? Are, are you exercising the word of God? Are you exercising saying no? Or are you just gaining? Your rotting flesh is sort of ballooning out. Where are you? One of the things that we have to do is to exercise. Another thing that we have to do is we have to expose our sin one to another. Genesis chapter three, we all know this from Genesis three. We all know it from our own lives. That sin always prefers to be hidden. You hide sin. You don't want anybody to see it. You, you fool yourself into thinking that you're not so bad. Yet, if we're going to put sin to death, we're going to have to expose it to the light. Proverbs 28, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Listen to this from Chris Lungard. Mortif the mortification of sin is collaborative. Listen carefully. The mortification of sin is collaborative. Private prayer and meditation are essential. But if they were our only weapons against the flesh, we would be outgunned. And then listen to this. A man alone with his sin could privately repent and confess his sins to God over and over, year after year, and never weaken its grip. Have you found that characteristic? I say it over and over, and I mean it every time, year after year, but I see no progress. Sin never seems to weaken its grip. What's wrong? But if he dared to drag his sins into the light, 
before a trusted brother in Christ, it would shrivel and die. See, the, one of the things that we must do is bring our sin out into the light. And I'm not suggesting that we take a Sunday and everybody comes up here and exposes all of their sins. Well, we quickly lose, uh, you know, a good singing ability here on Sunday mornings. But what I am saying is to a trusted brother or sister in Christ, you and I must expose our sin. If you think just by prayer you're going to make it, you're not going to make it. You're going to be outgunned. It has to be exposed in some way. That's why James says this, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you will be healed. But here's my concern, and it really comes from uh, a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. And it's my particular concern for this particular church. But Bonhoeffer says it well. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, even with corporate worship, common prayer and all their fellowship, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as undevout and as sinners. The pious fellowship permits permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner suddenly is discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone in our sin, living in lies of hypocrisy. See, we're a pretty good looking group. I know I get to look at you each Sunday. And we come in, myself included, we want to look like we're put together. We're secretly afraid somebody's going to find out that I'm the real sinner in the crowd. And so we have to be willing to tell one another and receive from one another that we're really sinners. Do you have somebody like that? If you think you can make it on your own, you're being lied to. And if you think everyone else in here is righteous and you're the only sinner, I've got some good news for you. There are lots of other sinners to join hands with you. Not to lead you down the same path, but to help a brother or sister out of that. It has to be collaborative. We must expose our sin one to another. Finally, I just want to sort of scrape off a little tip of the iceberg on this last point. I'm thinking through this sermon this week. And I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, okay, hold something in your mind. Um, Exercise the word of God. Expose your sin one to another. And, And all those things sound right. They all sound good. They all have a good biblical basis. And then I just kept thinking, well, is that it? I mean, I just sort of come and and I get these nice little 
things that are put together and and I go home feeling like this is what I should do. I mean, is that the goal of the Christian life is to to do better? I mean, is that that all there is or is or is doing better, getting it right, a means to the real goal? In your Christian life, in you in your thinking about pursuing Christ, maybe even in your coming to church. Is that a delight or is it a duty? Is your relationship with Christ more like a job or is it joyful? I mean, is the goal here to say, we got it right? Or is there something really much wilder and grander out there? That just getting it right, putting, our, putting ourselves in the way of something better by practicing these habits. The Westminster Confession of Faith asks this question, what's the chief end of man? You know what the answer is? To glorify God and enjoy. Do you do you enjoy Jesus? Would anybody would anybody say that you did if they just looked at your life? Or would they say, well, they're a Christian because of the job that I see they're doing. They're doing the right duty. But do they see joy pouring out of your life? You see, I think when we get captured by the joy of Christ, that maybe all by itself runs sin out of our lives quicker than anything else. Because you and I have been captured by somebody. We're not just doing a job. It's not just a duty. There's something joyful and delightful about it. And so the psalmist says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. And what he means by that, it's like if you take a hard candy, like a butterscotch or a Hershey's kiss, whatever you just say, man, this is enjoyable. You don't chew it up and swallow it. What do you do? You roll it around in your tongue. You keep it in your mouth as long as you can. And you're just frustrated when it's gone. And thankfully, they make packages that you can get more than one. So you pop another one in there. You're, you're tasting. You're, you're rolling Christ around in your mind and on your tongue. You're just doing it for sheer joy, not for duty. Is, is that anything like your experience? Are you here Looking nice, doing your duty. Is it just a job? Sin at the core is valuing something or someone above God. I mean, you may like God, that's fine, but I've really got to have this too, and that becomes the center. And so to, 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 to rid ourselves of that, we have to cut that off and we have to savor the real pleasure of God so that he becomes the most enjoyable thing 
in the world. A young girl, maybe 16, 17. She's invested all of her emotional energy into this young boy who's decided, I don't want to go with her anymore. And the girl comes back and she's crushed. And you say, gosh, what could get her out of this? What do you just commonly say? Another lover. You see, we we have a, a, a source, a life source that has to be cut off. But you love it. You love your lusts. You love your greed. You love your self-righteousness. You love your money. You love those things. And so it's hard to cut them off. It's just not that easy. And one of the ways that it becomes easier is if you have another lover. If you begin to taste, you you just develop a different palate. The things that I thought were giving me life, now I'm rolling around the love and the mercy and the grace of Christ. I'm holding that in my mind. I'm holding it in my mouth. So I just never forget. And I think the reason I just have time to scratch the surface here is because I think for many of us, we don't even really know how to do it. I mean, yeah, joy in the Lord and we sing and we clap and a few people raise their hands. And, but I mean, do you really understand that Jesus Christ is your lover? And when you're in love with Him, Remember what the hymn writer says? The things of this world, what happens? They grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So we have to exercise. I don't want to minimize that. We have to expose. I don't want to minimize that. But I think if I could just give you one, it would be joy. If you really thought of Christ as a lover, that all the other lovers that beckon at your door would just begin to grow strangely dim. Their knock would get a little softer. Their enticement would be a little less. And if you're like me, and many of you are, you just forget. You get out there and you mean well, but life gets busy. And you just go, I can't hold on to that, Paul. I hear what you're saying. I want to right now, but I struggle. I need something tangible. I need to remember by doing something physical what Christ did for me. And it seems to me he knew it. Because he gave us this supper to say, as off as you eat and drink, what? Think about me. Roll me around in your mind. Hold on to me. Let go of all those other things. So if you're a believer in Christ, with great joy, like a wedding, with a big smile, today you get to come down the center aisle. 
And you may have, it may, may just seem such a distant memory, but today you get to remember. You have a Savior, but He's a lover. Let's pray together. Lord, as we take these elements, we're, we're, we're creatures. We're here and we put our hands on something. We put our mouth into something. We, we see something. And I'm so thankful for this meal. A meal with the groom. With the real lover of our souls. And I pray as we come forward, there would be great joy in knowing and remembering the love that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll invite the elders to come forward as we just remember the, the new commandment that he gave in his blood and with his body. Because he is such a great lover, he has asked us and commanded us to go and to love one another. So we don't come to get we don't come alone. We come together towards Christ. That you and I might remember the great gift and the lover of our souls. And the music will play and you come when your heart's prepared.